Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, October the 27th, 2022. This show will be aired on Monday, October 31st, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 130th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Again, thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, where we invite you to join in our weekly pursuit for social justice. A pursuit where we seek to separate fact from fiction and where we acknowledge uncertainty, where we seek to deconstruct deceit by identifying where unproven allegations are presented as fact through repetition in the absence of evidence, and where uncertainties are approached from a humble, critical thinking perspective, because our interest is in deconstructing deceit and depression, not enabling it. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News fans. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Thursday. October the 27th, 2022. This show will be broadcast live on, on Monday the 31st. That's Halloween night, 6 to 7 p.m. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos. Delighted to have Mike Whitney as my guest tonight, which I'll, I'll formally introduce him in just a second. I wanted to start off with an introduction of Mike. When you read the Russian perspective of what's transpiring in the world and in the Ukraine theater, it's and compare its claims to the United States-Ukraine perspective that we are being spoon-fed day in and day out since the 2014 coup, it is striking how contrary they are. It's self-evident that that both positions cannot be true, and that Russia claims should be fact-checked before believing its arguments, or before dismissing them outright as Russian talking points, or you're a Putin apologist, But there is no such concern for fact-checking our U.S. media-led narrative that projects its Russia-phobic acceptance of everything our government tells us about this conflict. For instance, what happened in Bukha back in early April, what happened there? We were told Russia killed hundreds of Ukrainians indiscriminately, but forensic evidence indicated clearly this narrative could not be true, so the story has disappeared. The Russian bounty story back in June of 2020, The New York Times rolled that out. Pelosi, John Kerry, Joe Biden, Rachel Maddow all jumped all over it, ran with it, pushed the certainty of the accusation 
that Russia was paying bounties for the Taliban to kill U.S. forces, uh, that went up in smoke, with our own intel denying its veracity. And this deceitful disinformation campaign that plagues the U.S. and Western press is longstanding and effective. In this case, despite the failure of our intelligence to provide proof of the Russia bounty story, as we just indicated, a Reuters poll taken in July of 2020, right after the Russian bounty claims had been disproven, still showed that 60% of the Americans found the bounty story either very or somewhat believable, despite an absence, a dearth of any supporting evidence. This, according to a Reuters poll posted in a September 29, 2020 article. And compare this to the majority of the U.S. population that still believed a year to two years after the Iraq invasion by the U.S., the lies that took us to that war. A full year or more after the invasion, the majority of Americans still believed that there were weapons of mass destruction, that there was the harboring of al-Qaeda by Saddam Hussein, and that Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11. All lies, all disinformation. This, in a large sense, explains why there's no responsibility for these U.S. foreign policy war crimes. They're spun into falsehoods. Russia was accused of indiscriminate killing in Ukraine of Ukrainian civilians during its invasion post-February 24th. But the facts, as driven by their rules of engagement, show instead Russian protecting Ukrainian civilians was a priority. And relatively speaking, the civilian to military casualties in Ukraine of Ukrainians revealed as proof Russia has executed a war with great concern and relatively few civilian deaths, but still too many. Meanwhile, from the United States-led 2004 coup date to the Russian invasion in February 2022, over 14,000 Eastern Ukrainians were killed by indiscriminate bombings and evidence of neo-Nazi atrocities, including what transpired in, I believe, May of 2014 in Odessa when the trade union building that peace activists sought shelter in was burned to the ground and dozens were burned to death and beat to death as they tried to escape the flames by these right-wing thugs. Meanwhile, Amnesty International documented that it was not Russia, but it was the Ukraine army that, as a matter of routine, used civilian shields and hospitals and schools, not Russians, to execute their war. Yet our mainstream media narrative is that Russia was and is using civilian shields and has no concern for civilians. It is a simple projection. In other words, time and time again, what we blame Russia for, for doing is really what we are our allies have likely promoted as a matter of fact. You can be for or against the Russian invasion. I respect that. But the false narrative that accompanies it, unacceptable, and it's largely fooling the U.S. public. And it's not just Ukraine. There's been a long history of lies our government has fed us that completely dwarf the Russian bias that we see in Russia today. Just a few examples. The Pentagon Papers revealed the wall-to-wall lies that the United States fed us that indicated we were winning that war and making progress against the bad guys there when that was not the case at all. In fact, we were the bad guys. And that the whole country was behind the opposition. Ho Chi Minh and the North Vietnamese. Any honest review of those times would reveal the avalanche of deceit we were presented. Just read Dr. Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech he delivered April 4th of 1967 as his ideological maturity was peaking. 
exactly one year before his assassination, in which he shared an untold history of Vietnam and U.S. foreign policy. And fast forward to the Afghan papers by Craig Whitlock that revealed once again, we've been systematically lied to regarding the United States-led Afghan war execution and how it was progressing or actually not progressing. And just in this past decade, we were lied to about Iraq, Syria, and Libya, while meanwhile, our role in the Yemen conflict has been hidden from the American people as another million have died. When you add up the deaths and misery from Vietnam, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Afghanistan, it is in the many millions, the many millions dead. This is all after Dr. King had already characterized the United States foreign policy in his 1967 words that we, the United States foreign policy, is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Yet we are acculturated instead to see Russia as the aggressor. We are acculturated to be blind to our own unjust wars and foreign policies and blame Russia or Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi or whoever the dictator is for all the world's problems. We are taught to hate Russia and to be completely ignorant of our own war crimes. As we mentioned, we were lied to in the Russia bounty story and it and other unproven allegations such as Russiagate has served its purpose to indoctrinate U.S. citizens to hate and distrust whatever Russia says rather than critically evaluating its veracity compared to what our government says. We are taught to hate Russia. Just one example of this acculturation to hate Russia is captured by the words of James Clapper, which helps breed such unproven contempt. In May 2017, Clapper was criticized by some media outlets for a xenophobic remark in an interview with Chuck Todd from Meet the Press. He told NBC's Meet the Press that Russia almost is genetically driven to act deviously. This former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, has consistently provided information to corroborate the narrative that Russia interfered in the 2016 elections and pushed for an investigation into Donald Trump's ties with Russia. Critics have questioned Clapper's credibility, though, although it's not well known, citing his record of perjury during a congressional testimony in March of 2013, when he claimed the NSA does not wittingly collect data on millions of Americans, uh, the revelations from Edward Snowden's leaks disproved that claim and proved him to be a liar and revealed that the NSA was illegally spying on millions of Americans as part of a mass surveillance program. And then during that interview with Chuck Todd on May 28, 2017, Clapper said, quote, if you put that in context with everything else we know the Russians were doing to interfere with the election, which, by the way, was never proven. And just the historical practices of the Russians, who typically are almost genetically driven to co-opt, penetrate, gain favor, whatever, which is a typical Russian technique. So we were concerned, end quote. It's unclear what Clapper meant or what evidence he has suggested, writes Michael Sinato of The Observer to these remarks that I've quoted. But it's unclear what, what evidence he had to suggest that Russians are almost genetically driven to co-op, penetrate, and gain favor. His comments are xenophobic towards an entire ethnicity and are far beyond criticism of Putin and the Russian government, end quote. In other words, they breed hate, not compassion. They promote distrust, not concern or understanding. They promote war, not diplomacy. Because how can you be diplomatic with a genetically driven, deceitful enemy? Before I move on, I wanted to play an audio 
of a press conference with John Kirby. He was a National Security Council spokesman. He still is for these Democratic administrations. But I wanted our listeners to listen to how when confronted about the request for facts to support his position, he just arrogantly said that's not his responsibility. This press conference that Kirby was having was in the context of early 2016, and he was alluding to a claim by the United States that Russia had compromised Turkish airspace once again, referring to the November 24th, 2015 allegation in which a, the Russian fighter pilot and plane and his cohort was hit by what was believed to have been advanced medium-range air-to-air missile, eventually resulting in the death of two Russians. It was the first time a NATO aircraft had shot down a Russian or Soviet Air Force warplane since the Korean War in 1953. Russia asserted that they never violated Turkish airspace. Turkey said they did. Washington said they did but never provided the proof they surely had from satellite imagery of that area because it was a heavily trafficked area by the Russians who were bombing terrorists in that border area. This press conference follows, again, a alleged violation of Turkish airspace by, by Russia in January the following year, 2016. And again, the arrogance with which Kirby refuses to suggest that any type of evidence is required, that his word is good enough, is rather stunning. But listen to this, this excerpt. It's about a minute and a half. After Turkey claimed that a Russian jet violated its airspace last week, the Pentagon confirmed this on Saturday. Russia denies having crossed Turkish airspace and demands proof. Will the U.S. provide evidence? Uh, you know, one, you, you, uh, you're so good at asking these questions that, that it's the United States' responsibility to provide proof of what Russia is doing, which I find incredibly comical. It's not our job to confirm for the Russians what that, they're doing. What I can say is, this, so it must have what I can say is, is you go ahead and finish and then when you're done, I'll talk. Go ahead. More? We are aware of reports, and we can confirm. Uh, that on the 29th of January, another Russian combat aircraft violated Turkish and NATO airspace. As we stated uh, after past incidents, the United States joins NATO in standing in solidarity with Turkey, and we call on Russia to respect Turkish airspace and cease activities that risk further heightening instability in the region. It's important that the Russians and the Turks talk to each other and to take measures to prevent escalation. Russia denies having done that and, and to ask for proof. Will the U.S. provide proof? It's not, it's, not for, it's not our responsibility to provide proof to the Russians for something they did wrong. And is that, is, hang on a second now. What I said in my last comment there, we want the Russians and the Turks to talk about this to, and to share the appropriate amount of information so that incidents like this won't happen again. But for our part, there's no doubt that they entered Turkish and therefore NATO airspace. No doubt at all. Is that a right to make an accusation and not provide evidence? It's not an accusation. It's a fact. It's a simple fact. Yes, sir. Based on what? Can you provide pictures of that? Anything. I've answered your question. Okay, so, Mike, that was shortly after the November 24, 2015, shoot-down of the Russian Su-24 air fighter plane that Turkey shot down when they, they claimed it violated airspace in an outstanding piece by uh, Gareth Porter in December of 7th of 2015. 
he completely decimated the claims that uh, that Russia had violated that airspace in Turkey's complete position. But I don't want to spend time on that right now. I just wanted to talk about this arrogance of of our government when people ask for proof. It's kind of like, you know, we don't need to show proof that, you know, we don't need any stinking proof. The arrogance is astounding. But let me return back to the show focus. Well, let me uh, comment on that for a second, Pedro, because I think you made an important point. But, you know, people who are listening to this maybe can't really appreciate how absurd Kirby's position really is. It's the equivalent of a prosecuting attorney taking a murder trial and going in before the jury and pointing at the suspect and saying, well, this guy committed a brutal murder and we don't have any evidence of that. But you know, I can't believe that you wouldn't take my word for it. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying, but uh, it doesn't seem in the context he's saying it that's as absurd as it really is. But that's, that is basically his position, that the United States should not have to explain anything it does. Absolutely. And in this particular case, Mike, as you know, this shoot down, they killed a Russian pilot as he was parachuting down. And I just cannot imagine that the United States, if we lost a fighter plane pilot and he was murdered the way that he was. And Putin even indicated that the United States was aware of the location of this jet, that they had told him that the United States denies that. But they were near that very border area where the pilot was killed. But the whole point of all that had to do with Putin's concern. This is Putin's word. The U.S. knew the flight path of the Russian jet and should have informed Turkey he goes on, Russia is one of several countries directly involved in this Syrian conflict and began their involvement when invited by Syria. This September 30, 2015, it began its air campaign. But Putin accused Turkey of helping ISIS in the illegal oil trade, saying that funds from the sale of oil were being used to support these terrorists. In fact, these air raids were near that border area. The Russian Air Force had recently started bombing oil tankers en route to other countries, including Turkey and the infrastructure for processing and the storage of crude oil. And Putin later claimed that the Turkish shootdown was an ambush that had been prepared in advance. And this is what uh, Gareth Porter shows to be very credible in his piece. But I won't get into that. But I know you're really aware of, before we move on, maybe you can comment on the U.S. occupation to this day of the oil fields illegally in Syria and this continual arrogance in the form of just completely turning its back on international law. Well, you know, as well as I do, that the difference between the United States presence in Syria and the Russian presence is that uh, the Russia presence is entirely warranted and legal under international law because they were invited there by the duly elected and even the United Nations recognizes Assad as the legitimate ruler of Syria. In contrast, the United States is holed up with a new group of Kurds that it has basically given a quadrant of the country to and is is working with this group that is basically unwelcome in the entire neighborhood. That's including Syria, Iraq, and Iran. None of these people want the Kurds on their border. But what's been happening recently is rather interesting because there's been some activity over there. But just to show how restrained the Russian presence has been, They have allowed the United States with their Kurdish allies to occupy that portion, the oil producing area in eastern Syria for over four years now, everything east of the Euphrates. And they're just basically stealing and commandeering 80% of uh, Syria's 
oil, which they need, of course, to rebuild their country. But Russia has shown great restraint in not trying to recapture that area, which, of course, they could. But they would rather let it lie for now so that uh, they don't provoke a war directly with the United States. It just shows that if there's a peacemaker in this deal, it's basically Russia because they're not trying to expel the United States from that area. Yeah, it's amazing. They call it that rules-based order. They use that rules-based order because they know it's not international law. It's it's their own rules. It's it's just extraordinary that we act like just such a bully. We'll we'll make up the rules as we go along. I remember as a kid, no, you can't make up rules as you go along because we all knew that was implicitly unfair. Yeah, but we can. Something we should add to this point, though, is that the United States becomes directly involved as they seem interested in doing directly involved militarily in Ukraine. We're going to see some ferocious activity in the Syria theater as well, because there's going to be an attempt by Russia to push the United States out of there, because you're looking at basically a total war at that point. Yeah. Let me first, I did not properly introduce our guest, Mike Whitney. He's an investigative reporter from the state of Washington. He's written for the last 20 years or so on geopolitical issues and have been reading your work for a long, long time, Mike. And it's very prescient in analyzing things when propaganda that we talked about at the beginning of the show confuses everything. So I really appreciate you joining us tonight. But let me get back to one thing here and have you speak to it. The the White House responded to a letter that was sent to Joe Biden by a group of 30 progressive Democrats. It's already been retracted for a shift in this Ukraine policy of trying to promote diplomacy. And the press secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, told reporters last Monday that, quote, we've been very clear, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine, White House. Press secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre told reporters on Monday, that's last Monday, in response to the letter, adding that this is a decision that President Zelensky, quote, President Zelensky is going to have to make when it comes to any type of conversation with Russia, any type of negotiation, end quote. She earlier had tweeted the day before We've been very clear, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. To move on on the same subject, U.S. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby, this is the reason I played this excerpt we just heard from Kirby. He's still there. He also responded on Monday, stressing that, quote, we are not going to have conversations with Russian leadership without the Ukrainians being represented, he said. And this is according to the Washington Post. Quote, Mr. Zelensky gets to determine because it's his country what success looks like and when to negotiate. Kirby explained. And then earlier on March 29th, Mike, I want to just go back because there were important round of negotiations between Moscow and Kiev. On March 29th, there was very substantial peace talks going on that we sabotaged. And this took place in Istanbul back on March 29th. And Prior to this, representatives met again, and, and representatives of the two held three face-to-face meetings in Belarus. And negotiations started back in February 28th in the Gomel region. They continued on March 3rd and 7th in another city there, I guess, in Belarus. And they continued from there via video link. But I think the point I'm really trying to get at is that on March 29th, for the first time, the entire period, these are Lavrov's words, I believe. The entire period of contacts between our delegations, the Ukrainian side, proposed a written vision of how the treaty could look in terms of the status of Ukrainian security guarantees, the minister said. According to Lavrov, in the course of the negotiations with Russia, Kiev had for the first time put on paper its readiness to declare itself neutral, not aligned to any bloc, and non-nuclear. What's more, he insisted that the Ukrainians had formalized a refusal to deploy the weapons of foreign states on their territory 
or to conduct exercises there with the participation of a foreign military without the consent of the guarantor states of the future treaty, which would include Russia. The security guarantees provided by the agreement, Lavrov argued, have completely ruled out NATO's eastward expansion and ensured, quote, unquote, indivisible security on the European continent. In addition, Minister added, the Ukrainian side itself wrote down on the, in the draft of the main provisions that security guarantees would not apply to Crimea and the Donbass, a move that Lavrov dubbed as, quote, unquote, progress. Anyhow, Mike, with the- well, let me interrupt you for one yeah. second there, because I want to underscore what you're saying. Yeah. What you're saying is that Kirby and the other members of the foreign policy establishment are saying, we're not going to do any deal unless Ukraine is involved. OK, right. right. And then on the other hand, when Ukraine is directly involved and they make a deal that's everything but done and dusted with the Russians, the Russians are going to withdraw their <laughs> troops for just security guarantees in the Donbass and for themselves as far as NATO membership. And then uh, the United States blows up the deal. Uh, so, Mike, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. We will continue with our special guest, Mike Whitney, investigative reporter and writer, geopolitical expert, after this brief break to take care of some co-op business. Back in a flash. Don't touch that dial. 